Thank you for joining us today. In this episode, prior members will recount their experiences while inside the religious group I grew up in. If you would like to learn more, share your story, or become a sponsor, please visit us at coltonconnecticut.com. You are now listening to Colton Connecticut. I was 15. My life at that point in time was very tumultuous and I didn't have a lot of support at home. And I was kind of a loner at school. Like I had some friends, but I also had a lot going on within my personal life, emotionally, mentally, just really needing a a lot more support as far as friendship. And I was a lonely kid trying to figure out who I was, but trying all the wrong ways to figure out who you are, getting involved in risky behavior and, and things like that. But I had a friend who basically we, she invited me over her house to sleep over. And one of the things she asked was, hey, if you want to sleep over Saturday night, we can go to church on Sunday the next morning. And to me, I had grown up Catholic. So, and been to, after that, after I was like eight, we went to like congregational churches too. So church to me wasn't a big deal. I thought, yeah, I can just like sit there and whatever. At that time, between the ages of like 15, 16, all I was thinking about was let's go hang out at my friend's house. Let's have a fun sleepover. And sure, I don't really care if if I go to church with my friends. What happened was that kind of became a pattern that I would stay at my friend's house for pretty much the weekend because their family provided what I thought was a stable atmosphere. It was the mom and dad were married and they had their kids and they had dinner together. And I just kept being able to stay at my friend's house every weekend. Whereas in my family situation, my dad was a single parent, worked second shift. It was just me at home with my older brother, who is like four years older than me. So there's two teenagers at home alone most of the time. When we were at school, my dad would be home sleeping. But whenever I came home, he was gone to work. So there was a lot of loneliness, a lot of not a lot of role models to, you know, see how I'm supposed to be living my life. So the friend inviting me over to their house on the weekends was very appealing because it looked like a very stable atmosphere, very different from what was going on in my home life. And so I would stay the whole weekend. And really at first I was thinking all about how I'm hanging out with my friend and we're having a great time. And then the church thing was like a, a, a sidebar. But what I noticed about the church when we went was everybody was very enthusiastic. It was very strange to me, but I'm trusting my friends. And what happened in the beginning, which I understand now is what happened looking back, but I was love bombed in the beginning. And that's where when I came in, I didn't know that everybody knew each other already. So if someone new comes in, everybody notices That was not typical of my church experience. My previous regular church experience was whoever shows up, shows up, and and you don't always know who comes and goes. I did not realize that in this group setting, everybody always went all the time. So you knew if someone new came. Everybody came over to say hi to me, gave me a hug, wanted to know my name, who I was, so glad I was there, so warm and welcoming. It's very appealing to especially a kid who's feeling very alone and very unsure of 
what her life is going to look like and not feeling very stable. And all of a sudden you have this entire 150 people giving this 15 year old all this attention, saying that they're happy that they're there and that they're great and can't wait to see them next week. So it becomes very appealing and almost intoxicating in a way because all of the love and affection I kind of was needing and looking for, they were offering. And the message was, well, you know, give your life to Jesus, to God, and he'll fix you. You know, there was a lot of, a lot of the sermons were about how broken you are and how your life's a mess, but God can make it better. And looking back, I'm realizing the pastors knew I was one of the new people. So there were, I'm sure, moments where they took some freedom and were speaking directly to me in a roundabout way. You know, if you're broken or lonely, God can be the father you don't have. I just went hook, line, and sinker. I just totally like went for it because everything they were saying at each sermon was about how broken and lonely and horrible your life is without God. And I believed them. They had such a charismatic way of performing the music, praying prayers out loud. It was almost hypnotic in the beginning because there's so much singing and, you know, they kind of show the congregation, okay, let's sing that again or sing it with all your heart and people praying randomly and, you know, you're just kind of trying to fit in. You don't want to be the one that sticks out. So it started to look like, oh, these people have something that other people don't have. That was one of the major things I kept thinking in my head. They, oh, these people have something other people don't have. Everybody loves being here. Everybody's so happy. How can this be real? Everybody's so happy. Nobody has any problems. They, it really looked like every family had a mom and a dad. And there was so much of the appearance of love everywhere. So I definitely got the impression that this was the only place right now that I could find God and Jesus because this group of people was so effervescent with their experience and explanation of who God was and his love. But there was a big theme running through of we have something special. We have something special here. You can't really find it anywhere else. You know, they did acknowledge that other churches were around, but a lot of times in the sermons too, there would be a little bit of a undertone of a lot of other churches don't do it right. Thankfully, God shows us how to do it in this church, how to serve God right, how to live right. So in my mind, I really was like, whoa, okay, I guess this is one of the only churches that really has something real. I was just looking for something that was real. Connection, family, friendship. And in the beginning, that was very freely offered. I was 15. I didn't really understand the strings that were attached to that. I thought it was unconditional love, but it, you know, I found out over the years, it, it very much so is not, was not unconditional love. So at 16, I got baptized and I, I had already been baptized as a baby, but I was like, I need to do this again. I really need to make my own commitment. When I decided to commit my life to God and to Jesus, which I thought that's what I was doing, I was going to give it 110%. I quit everything else in my life or never followed through or I wasn't reliable. And I decided this would be the one thing that I would be very reliable on and it would be the thing to save my life. So I should give it 
And that's what I did. I stopped, you know, any criticisms in my brain, anything that I saw that I thought was weird, I immediately was like, oh, it's okay. I love these people. I trust them. They're good people. Maybe it is a little weird that they stand there and they speak in tongues, another language. Like I, that kind of creeped me out. Okay, but that's fine. These people love me. They would never hurt me. They would never steer me wrong. Monday morning, I'd get a call. Hey, we have the evening service we're going to. You want to come to the evening service on uh, Wednesday, you know, the midweek service, whichever day of the week they decide to do, it would be a midweek service. And once you're baptized, it's like you've got to really show up and make sure you're committed because if you don't, you will be pulled aside and talked to. The manipulation starts so subtly. And then before you know it, you are giving up all of your free time to meet with these people and be part of their church group and change the world for Jesus and rescue other lost people. I remember in high school, I was doing after school activities, but midweek, there was the midweek service and I would always get a phone call midweek from a friend that's my age. We're going to the midweek service. Do you want us to pick you up and give you a ride? And I remember one of the first times I said, no, I can't, I have too much homework. And I was told by that peer of mine, well, who are you going to put first? Get your homework done and and put Jesus first. And looking back, I'm realizing how inappropriate that is, that you don't have a high schooler forsake homework to go hang out in a church group meeting for an hour or two hours midweek. And I was very busy. I did a lot of after school activities. Every single day I did sports and I did, I did the musical at one point. I did not have a lot of free time. And so they wanted me to attend this 730 evening service. It's it's just crazy looking back because my parents weren't in the picture. I didn't have an adult there to say, Hey, no, I'm your parent. I'm telling you, you need to stay home. And then my peer from the church who would call me, the call basically became a, why aren't you coming? Let's go. We need to go. If you're really serious about this, if God did so much for you already, he saved you. The least you can do is give him an hour or two out of your night. And I remember dreading the midweek phone call because there were times where I didn't have time to go. And quite frankly, times I didn't want to go. I was churched out. So there were times I had to like make up excuses. I had to be like, oh, I'm not feeling well or... You know, and it's sad because I did not want to disappoint people at the church. I remember sitting at home trying to get my homework done. My friend called to pick me up and I was like, no, I can't go. I would be watching the clock from 7 to 8.30 and I would be thinking about how they're all at the service right now and now they know I'm not there. And I always would get a call after the service ended to from somebody. Hey, where were you tonight? We missed you. I hope you're doing okay. If you didn't show up to the services, all three services, you would get a call or someone, usually a peer or another adult, would pull me aside and say, hey, I'm really worried about you. I'm worried about you and your walk with Jesus. And there was a big narrative of, oh, you don't want to lose what you have. You don't want to lose this new healing you have in your life and this new purpose in your life. You'll lose it If you don't commit and you don't keep showing up, you have to give God your all. He died for you. The least you can do is give him your all in exchange. 
And I didn't realize how toxic and dangerous that kind of mindset is because then nothing becomes okay for you to do. You have to make sure and measure that against, oh, if I go do this, am I spending my time in a way that is respectful towards another person, Jesus, who died for me, who literally like bled on a cross and died for me? Like that, that's a very powerful imagery and it's a very powerful tactic to use to get someone to do what you want them to do. If you're not going to respond in a way that's reciprocal, then you're a horrible human. When you join the group, it changes everything. Like who I dated, my options were gone after that. I was interested in, in dating, but the message was once you're baptized and you're born again, filled with the Holy Spirit, you have to completely trust God to give you whoever your next spouse is going to be. And not only was that a narrative or spoken from the pulpit all the time, there were always examples of that, quote unquote, in the people around me. There were all these marriages that people were like, oh, God put these two people together. God put this couple together together. There was a big story that God has picked out the right person for you and you need to wait for that person or, you know, God will show you who that person is. And until then, you know, you can't date anybody. I couldn't think about having a crush on anybody in my grade or in my school system because if they weren't a Christian, then there was a narrative that it's really dangerous to date somebody who isn't in our group. Because if you date them, then you're putting them before your love for Jesus, your love for God and love for the group. So that's really sad looking back. Like I I had no options. You know, the only people you could date were people either in the church or in the church in England. The sister church in England, there was a bunch of young people that would come over for youth groups sometimes uh, because there was a lot of back and forth. That's another thing. You know, when I was saying earlier, You love people and you respect them. So even when you see weird things happening, you don't question it. You can kind of question it. Like I questioned a little in the beginning and I was very much told either mind your own business or don't worry about it. I questioned, hey, why do these people from England keep coming over? There'd be a whole family staying with another family in Jewett City, just like staying with them. And not for like a week, they'd stay for like a month. And I would go over my friend's houses and there'd be this whole other family staying in this family's house. And it wasn't a very relaxed atmosphere. It was typically whoever was hosting the family from England. It's very stressful. Everybody has to be fed on time. House has to be clean. And everybody has to be like in a good mood and everything's got to be great. Because at first I thought, oh, that's nice. Everybody worked together so well. But then I kind of being realistic. I was like, so nobody has a bad day. Like nobody gets exhausted or like complains or like those little red flags kept coming up. But I made excuses for it because the trade-off was all of this love and acceptance and um, being part of the group. I heard about people getting married and moving to England. So some, some people would marry someone who was English and then they would move over to and serve in the other church, the sister church. Um, it was called Bethel at the time. So in my mind, my only options for dating anybody would be either the church in Norwich or the church in England. But I knew, and it's like, you see 
other people's relationships enough that you start to understand, oh, if I married anybody from England, I would have to move to England. That's how the direction usually went. England was like the mothership. Uh, that was the biggest church. And they really had, you know, the Holy Spirit on fire and did amazing things. And we were, the church in Norwich was just really lucky to know them. But I got that narrative too from the pastors. The pastors all the time would preach from the pulpit. We're so fortunate that England came over and Gene Spademan and John Hibbert came over and they set us free from all the spiritual stuff and helped us. And, you know, thankfully Gene can hear the voice of God. They called her Syro, but now I feel more comfortable calling her Gene. So I didn't realize that they considered her a prophet because people were careful whether or not they would say that in writing or to a very large group. It was one of those things that it was understood that she was a prophet, but a lot of people were careful whether or not to say it and who to say it to. They would only say it to people who they quote trusted or people they knew wouldn't question it. As a kid, I'm looking at these relationships. I go to these houses where they've invited me over for lunch. And I see these families thinking they're these wonderful families learning, oh, wait a second. This person used to be married to another person in the church, but they got divorced and married other people. And that was weird at first. There was at least, I know there are at least two people who they had gotten divorced, but then they remarried other people, but they were all still in the same church together. And I was like, oh, they also get along. That's kind of, that's kind of amazing. And then finding out that Syro was the person that they would oftentimes go to for guidance or what to do and who to marry, where to live. Those were all little pieces that started coming together over time as I stayed with different people at their homes on the weekends, hung out with different kids and their families. I, you know, would ask questions and it was always like, oh, this was such a blessing. Syro helped us with this. We had like problems with nightmares and she taught us how to pray this special prayer. And now we don't have nightmares anymore. I specifically remember that. But I believed it. I was like, well, I guess. But part of me was always a little standoffish because I really just did not know what to expect. Because also there was a lot preached that God will reveal your sins to other people. They like to use the scripture that says that our hearts are wicked and deceitful and who can know it. So that scripture would be used a lot to say, hey, you know, you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your own heart and desires. Thankfully, we have people in our ministry who hear the voice of God. So if you have a question or concern and you're praying about it, come ask somebody in the ministry team and they'll pray on it and God will give them an answer. And really it was an answer through Gene Spademan. So that wasn't something that was advertised right up front. That was not something that was openly talked about on your typical Sunday morning. That was more something that you found out once you got to know the group over time and you really got to know other people and you start to find out more and more. A friend of mine might say, oh yeah, Syro named my kid, blah, blah, blah. We thought my kid was really, really sick when they were, when I was pregnant, I was really, really sick and I didn't know if the baby was going to make it. And and God gave me a name for my child and through Syro. And I, and I made another excuse. I'm like, okay, well, these are people who are very kind. They're very honest. You know, these are the kind of people who would not go over the speed limit. These are people that, you know, they live their lives in such a 
appearingly honorable way in everything else that I made, that I just dismissed the criticism in my head that this seems weird. I thought, no, these are good people. These are people who don't lie and they are very honest. So whatever they're doing must be okay. So at one point in time, as I'm getting older as a teenager, I'm more involved. I'm realizing I can never pick who I want to get married to. (laughs) You know, like if I did want to pick somebody, they'd basically have to get vetted. They'd have to join the church. I knew they'd have to join the church and they would have to toe the line and, and just pretty much fall right in because I saw other people leave the church. Like I would see, or if someone else my age was dating someone from my school that wasn't part of the church, you would hear other moms or other teenagers go, oh, did you hear so-and-so's dating this person? I'm really concerned about their walk with Jesus because they are dating somebody who's not part of the, you know, who's not following God. And they acted like that was like the most dangerous thing you could do because they're selling you this idea that your life depends on your salvation is through Jesus and what he's done for you. But it's almost like they hold the keys of whether or not that's going to stick, whether or not you're going to keep your salvation. And that's very terrifying if you believe in heaven and hell. It's very, very scary. So the idea that you are not following God's will or you're not with somebody who's in God's will and that could like put you out of God's will is terrifying that you will lose everything. Not only could I just not date whoever I wanted, I learned over the years, I couldn't just go to college. I couldn't just have whatever job I wanted. I couldn't just live wherever I wanted. All of those things had to line up with, quote, God's will for my life. And the people who knew God's will for my life were, they would say, you kind of knew God would lead you, but really God would put something on someone's heart. I would sometimes randomly get a phone call or someone would pull me aside. You think, you know, I get a random phone call during the week. Hey, you know, I saw you the other day and you looked really down and really worried about your walk with Jesus. You know, maybe there's some sin in your life you should really pray about and get that sorted out. And what that meant is you had to like pray and be sorry. I didn't even know what I was sorry for, but I had to be sorry and pray and get right with Jesus. Because if I didn't, what I noticed is when I would get around my other group of friends, I wasn't talked to as much. I wasn't invited to random gatherings at people's homes as much. You know, I, I wasn't shown as much love and affection. So I realized pretty quickly if I was sorry and said sorry to God and everybody, then they were like, I get forgiveness. And then I was back in with having all of the love and affection that I was bombed with in the beginning. So when you put all that together, you start to understand that, oh, I can't just do whatever I want. I can't just date whoever I want. I can't, I can't go to whatever school I want because if in any way it was out of God's will, I could get in trouble. During services, they talked about how you're your brother's keeper. You know, so that means you look out for each other. And if you really love somebody, then you're going to tell them when they're doing something wrong. Well, that's like putting ammunition in someone's hands to like emotionally and mentally hurt somebody. Because the idea is if you see someone else, quote, sinning or not following God's will, and you don't say something, 
then God's going to hold you accountable because you're your brother's keeper. So when you stand before God one day, you'll be in trouble. Even if I wasn't with other adults and I was just like with kids, we would tell on each other. Like that was terrible. They, they pretty much put it in your head that you had to look out for each other. Adults modeled that a lot too. And the way they would make it sound is like, oh, we need to really pray for so-and-so. We really need to pray for, I'll just use me as an example. Somebody might say to you, oh, we really need to pray for Danielle. She's not been coming to church as often and she's really getting sidetracked at school and just worried that she's not, you know, doing God's will for her life. And we don't want the enemy to come in and and rob her of her salvation and, and what she has in God. She's come so far. God has such great plans for her life. And if we don't, if we don't pray for her right now, then she'll be a mess. So the weird thing is that's feigning care and concern because really it's just an opportunity to talk about somebody and then everybody gets it in their head that Danielle is not doing well. So then everybody treats Danielle with like kid gloves. You know, they don't trust her as much. And until she gets right back on the right track, you kind of have to keep your distance. Whatever spiritual issue they have going on, you don't want it to affect your spiritual walk. And that's what would happen if you weren't towing the line, if you weren't falling in line and going along with everything. You would you would get a phone call, someone would show up at your house to talk to you. And it would always be in this attitude of, I'm your friend, I really love you. And because I love you, I'm gonna tell you this is what you're doing wrong because I just wanna see you filled with all of the life that you had when you first started coming. So, you know, in the beginning, they, sh- they love bomb you. You fill you up with all this. Oh, you're wonderful. We're so glad God's going to do amazing things to very quickly. Okay, but you, if you want to keep all of that, you need to do what you're told to do. You need to show up to all of the meetings. You need to have a smile on your face and have a good attitude. You're not allowed to have a bad attitude. I remember people, parents and uh, kids saying, kids my own age in high school, well, they just have a bad attitude. It's like the worst thing you could do. So you learned very quickly not to let anybody know if you were having a bad day or sad or grouchy because you would be called out on it. It would be pointed out, oh, well, you're having a bad attitude and you should be filled with with joy and happiness. (laughs) So quickly you start to learn behavior modification. You cannot just have a bad attitude. Like if you have a bad attitude, you're going to be talked to in a little while and how you're being a bad example of Christ to other people around you and you're going to stumble other people. You're going to mess up other people's lives because you're walking around with a bad attitude. So you could be going along feeling totally normal and fine, think you're doing really well. And then you get one of the pastors pulls you aside and says, you know, we're really concerned about you. You're you're not doing well. And it's like a sucker punch to the guts because you're like, I thought I was doing everything right. So it was very confusing at times because you the rules kept changing, you know, of, of what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Cleaning was huge. I remember one Saturday, my friend was like, no, I have to clean this entire house before I can hang out with you. Like before we can do anything. And it wasn't just like, okay, her parents are strict and they just want the house clean because that's the time to do it on the weekends. It was very like, if you don't get the cleaning done, you're being a disobedient child. You're being disobedient and Jesus isn't going to be very happy with you. And, and unfortunately, 
that whole attitude of cleaning and pleasing Jesus with your being a servant to clean has still stuck with me. A couple of years after we got out of the cult, I would still clean my house nervously and methodically. Like there couldn't be no dust because I learned as I got older and as an adult in the cult, having my own home, if your house is messy, someone would say something. And it would basically mean that you are not being a servant. You're not welcoming Jesus into your home. His Holy Spirit can't be in your home if it was too dirty. Thank you for listening to Colton, Connecticut, as I explore, investigate, and learn more about the religious group I grew up in, located in Norwich, Connecticut, and Mansfield Woodhouse, England, formerly known as Dayspring, King's Chapel, Bethel, Peniel, and the International Church.